Hi, I'm Amy. And I'm Marcella. And we are both transracial and transnational adoptees, as well as licensed clinical social workers and trauma therapists. We have dedicated our lives to shedding light on the complexities of adoption and the system responsible for them. We have seen both personally and professionally the silent and overt struggles brought on by this trauma, and we are determined to do our part to bring about healing. We know that some of the information we share and topics we unpack may be triggering and uncomfortable at times, but we feel the only way to promote change is to be honest by sharing our truths and elevating the experiences of those in our community. We hope you will join us on this journey of listening and learning with an open heart and an open mind. Welcome to Adoptee's Dish. Hey everybody, welcome back to Adoptee's Dish. This is Amy. And this is Marcella. We are like smiling from ear to ear today. Super excited because this is our first episode with a guest. This is such a big deal. Yay. I know. We're super pumped. We're so excited. We're like everybody's cheesing really, really hard here. It's awesome. Yeah. It's an exciting and a happy moment. I think for a lot of reasons, when we first envisioned what we wanted this podcast to evolve into, one of the things that we just cherish so much are the different perspectives and voices within our community, specifically other adopted people and sharing their lived experience and amplifying their voices. It's so important because there is such a spectrum when it comes to realities and opinions and voices and experiences and all of it makes sense and all of it matters. And so to be able to dive a little bit deeper and to hear how other experts in this field are connecting and doing really important work around the experience of adoption is just really cool to have our guest here with us today. Super exciting. Yeah. So without further ado, we have Lena here with us today. Lena Venegas, we're so excited to have you. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. I'm really honored and excited to be here. Um, So I am a transracial displaced person. I was um, adopted or displaced or bought and sold from Bogota, Colombia in 1976 and I was taken to um, what is known as the United States. And um, I was bought by a white Jewish couple. And so I had, I identify as both a transnational and transracial displaced person. Um, my work, I do a lot of work in suicide prevention, postvention, awareness and education. So I'm a consultant, a trainer, a speaker. Um, I do some writing also. Um, I have an MSW my passion just comes from my lived experience. This wouldn't be the work that I would choose if this wasn't my lived experience. It's really hard work. So I have experience obviously as a displaced person, an adopted person. And then I also have experience. I do a lot of work in trauma, mental health and suicide. So I do have lived experience as a suicide loss survivor. So that experience has informed my work and it just better, it made me realize how much Um, We don't know and how much we need to know and how little research there is on the intersection of adoption and suicide. Totally. Oh my gosh. It's all so important. I feel like I always say like our first little intro, we all have to take a deep breath because we're tackling like really big topics, but um, we are so, I think you hit on so many important points just already. So I'm excited to dive in a little bit more. Yeah. And thank you for being willing to share some of your experiences with us today, because I know that 
this is not easy to dive into and this it does require a very heavy dose of emotional labor. So we do not take that lightly in this space and we are just so appreciative for you sharing those parts with us today. Thank you so much for giving a space and holding a space and creating a space where we can have these conversations that are tough, um, but that we need to have. So I appreciate the work that both of you are doing to make this happen. Thank you. We really are better together. I think that that's what I love about when we, the three of us have had conversations before, there's a sisterhood there. And I think we all value so much our community. And like you said, I don't know if we'd be doing this work if we didn't have this embodiment of what this lived experience and how it's played out, but how beautiful in the brokenness that we've been able to find true connection and sisterhood in that. Um, A a year or two ago, I'm trying to think of how long I've known you now, Lena. You shared, you were getting ready to do a training on under like the whole umbrella on suicide awareness. And I remember you shared a speech with me that literally moved me to tears. But what do you think when we are some of the biggest misconceptions when having this conversation specifically within the context of adoption? Um, I guess it would depend who we're talking to, but I'll, I'll make it an overarching conversation. I think some of the biggest misconceptions are just the different, the narrative that's out there regarding adoption. So the narrative is saying adoption's beautiful, adoption's a win-win, adoption, you're, you know, you're lucky to be adopted, your mother loved you so much that she gave you up, you should be grateful for this. So in all of that narrative, there is a complete um, deletion of regarding the loss that we experience yeah. when being separated from our mothers and our families and the trauma and the grief. So that, I mean, the way, the way the, the adoption propaganda narrative has everything framed, it sets that conversation in a very different um, path down a very different path. than if we could all say adoption is trauma, which we know it is. Uh Uh So I think it's important if we come from that perspective, we're going to have a much different conversation because we're acknowledging it's trauma, it's grief, it's loss. Mm-hmm. I think that's such a good point, though, like from the very beginning, so often the language that's used and the narratives that are thrown out are completely contradictory to what our internal experiences, what our nervous systems experiences. And I mean, I can speak personally, I can speak with so many of the clients I work with, like, it is really exhausting, no matter what age you are, day in, day out to feel these certain things, right? Of like, I miss my mother, I miss my culture, I miss my country, all of these things, but then to be told externally, but you're good now, right? It's beautiful. This is a wonderful thing. You should be so happy. And I can understand just in this context of, you know, suicide and suicidality, like for a lot of clients I work with, they're just like, oh my God, that sounds like an option just to like make this tug of war stop, right? Like this really excruciating, like mismatch of things. Like it it makes a lot of sense that this is at least a part of those people with complex trauma. Mm-hmm. It definitely, it definitely is. It's a side effect of that trauma yeah. and that grief and that loss. So it definitely makes sense. So, and we so often, not you, not the three of us, but so often society and various providers and sometimes people that have adopted or are looking to adapt tend to pathologize adopted people and diagnose and that how harmful is that instead of if we would just recognize the trauma, grief and loss 
you know, things could go much farther and adaptive people could be so much more supported. Totally. I think not to go too far off onto this, because I think this is probably a whole other episode, a whole other conversation for a different day, but very timely right now, we're seeing in real time, Colin Kaepernick going through so much and getting dragged through the media for Mm -hmm. being brave enough to share his lived experience as an adopted person and how the media will pick very divisive language around accusing parents or, and the comments are just so disheartening, not unfortunately, not surprising at all, but still very, very, very disheartening. And I think it just speaks to what you're saying is that when adopted or displaced people share or get in touch with that raw whole experience of that grief, that loss, if they are brave enough to share it, they usually are often are so minimized, so dismissed, labeled as so silenced. Yeah, just silence. All of that lived experience is weaponized against them. And so from an early age, from that developmental age, if that's the pattern that's forming, I mean, how, like, if we just really sit with that, how heavy that really is for our systems as we develop constantly being bombarded with messaging like that, that impact runs just so, so, so deep. So again, I don't want to like veer off into that because that is a very important conversation, but I think it speaks to what you're saying of how, how much this, this is so much of our lived experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the pathologizing, and like you're saying, the ungrateful, there's actually a hashtag trending ungrateful piece of shit for Colin Kaepernick. And I think part of the part of the piece that also we should recognize is he's a black man. He's a black transracial adaptive person. So that's adding anti-blackness. That's adding racism, all of that onto being a displaced person. So that's a whole nother level of trauma. And we know that racism is it it's an adverse childhood experience. And we need to start acknowledging adoption as such. So the more intersectionality adopted people are have, I think the greater risk there are for suicidal ideation, suicide attempts, and death by suicide. It's just so many levels of not being seen, heard, and validated. Yeah, I'm so happy to name that. Thank you. Yeah, I think it's so important, and you hit on something really important, Lena, of just like there's different degrees of this, right? Like a lot of people, even people that maybe aren't adopted, right, or displaced, have maybe a thought of like, I just don't want to be here today, right? Or I just want to go to sleep and never wake up, right? Like there's still so much stigma around this thing that like most of us have maybe felt or expressed at some point. And then of course, there's this spectrum that gets, you know, more and more intense. But I think that it's so important to 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 identify that there are different degrees of this. And you hit on something really important of there's prevention and then there's like postvention which I would love to kind of hear more about like what those look like in terms of your work because I think it's it's so important that both sides are getting addressed. Absolutely I think it it all goes together Um, we have to be listening to the voices of the most impacted amplifying those so that goes to like suicide loss survivors that goes um, with attempt survivors Um, we have to be having conversations to create awareness and education, and we don't have a whole a lot of that regarding adoption and suicide. So there needs to be a big push for that. So like having these conversations, having trainings as much as we can. There needs to be you know more research, just more information. We just don't have information, and people are like really surprised when I do a training or I do you know a consultation, 
And I bring this up in terms of the intersection of adoption and suicide. And a lot of people have never even connected the dots and they're really floored as to this being something that's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's one thing that I want for people who are listening. One thing that I, I love about you, Lena, is you're always very intentional about the language that you choose and language is so important and it's so, so, so powerful. And I, for those, I think there's a lot of people listening that probably still use the language committed suicide. Mm -hmm. When I listen to you, I hear you say died by suicide. And so could you explain to those listening why you use that terminology and why that's such an important perspective shift for you? Thank you so much for bringing that up. And it's also important if we start our language, how we talked about adoption being trauma. If we come from that perspective, it frames it. When people say committed suicide, it is saying that they did something that was wrong and committing something is often associated with a crime. So it's like commit murder, commit rape, commit bank robbery, those kind of things. But, but suicide is, it's not that, you know, sometimes life, is just so dark and life is just so hard. No one really honestly wants to die by suicide. So it's important to say died by suicide or death by suicide. So we're not blaming the person that was struggling because so often we pathologize people who are dealing with suicidal ideation or who have died by suicide, who have had attempts. We, you know, we have this whole um, story and narrative about people like that. And it's it's not a positive story. So if we can destigmatize that and we cannot blame people for their struggles and suicide is a side effect of trauma, it's a side effect of life, it's a side effect of racism, capitalism, all the isms. So mm-hmm. I think it's important that we do not blame someone for struggling because that is not going to help anybody. And it's going to hurt family members and people that, you know, have lost someone to suicide or are dealing with um, someone that has struggling with ideation or someone who has just had a suicide attempt. Mm. Suicide is a symptom of trauma. I mean, I think that that, what you just said is, is such a powerful, powerful statement that suicide is a symptom of trauma. I think that right there is like, that right there, I think is such a takeaway from this this episode. Thank you for sharing. That's very, the language is so important. And I think I agree a hundred percent with what you said of there's such a tendency. And I think it's part of the stigma um, because people get uncomfortable talking about these really big topics. And I think that it's so much easier to vilify and punish and like put the blame on like, well, they did this and all of these things. And, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, I see people that, you know, are in those really painful spaces and have the bravery to maybe express to somebody, hey, I'm feeling this right now, or hey, like, I'm really going through it right now. And then they're met with like this overreaction, or they're met with like, oh, my God, well, then you need to go to the hospital immediately. And you have to do this. And like, almost this like panic and like, crisis level thing where yes, sometimes that's absolutely necessary. But a lot of times, like, that's just how they're trying to express this trauma and this pain and this grief and this loss. And, you know, it would be, I think we would be in such a different position if people were attuned to the fact that that's what's like underneath, you know, the bottom of the iceberg, instead of just being so reactionary 
at whatever level of the spectrum to like the very tip of the iceberg, which maybe is that statement or, you know, that attempt or, you know, whatever that looks like. I think we'd be in a way different position. I, I completely agree with that. I completely agree. Yeah. So Lena, in the work that you do with adopted and displaced people, we talked about, we know this, the statistic of adoptees are four times more likely to commit suicide I, oh, there, I even said it, right? To commit suicide, yeah. to die by suicide. I think that that's something that I'm still, that's something that I'm unlearning too. I think that we just say that language, right? Yeah. So mm -hmm. die by suicide rather than non-adopted peers. Mm -hmm. I would argue that that's probably a way underrepresented number because not everyone yeah. is always recorded or accurately recorded or documented the way it needs to be. When working with adopted and displaced people, what do you feel has been some of the biggest challenges around having amplifying their stories and having people really attuned to them? What do you think are some of the biggest challenges that stand in the way of that? I think the indoctrination that people have to adoption propaganda, that's the biggest thing. People don't want to hear um, the truth. People don't want to have these conversations. There's a lot of pushback in terms of you know, people want to hear a very, the happy story, you know, about adoption. And um, so people are quick to dismiss these kind of stories or talk over them or silence them or make them exceptions. So in a lot of these suicide prevention spaces, um, people don't, people don't necessarily want to hear this. And it's not a conversation that's being had a lot. So it's very, very new um, you know, to suicide prevention and suicide postvention. And, and there's a lot of pushback. People don't want to hear it. It's much like how people that had loved ones who died by suicide, they were kind of like, they were stigmatized. No one wanted to hear their voice, you know, mm -hmm. going back in time. So it's like adopted people, um, people don't really want to hear a narrative that isn't positive, that isn't beautiful, that isn't grateful. So this is very much you know, something that people have a hard time sitting with. So I find there's a lot of pushback. Um, people are uncomfortable. People are angry. People have been angry at me when I share the truth. And, and the feedback has been harmful because I will say like in the presentation, this is what we can do, you know, to support adoptive people. And I find that the people that, you know, are upset at me or angry, they kind of do exactly what I say not to do. So people aren't listening. Um, so we need to just have these conversations, continue to have these conversations. And eventually, you know, people will begin to listen. There's going to be people that are not going to listen and we can't control that. We have to keep doing the work. And if people are committed to not listening, that's not for us to worry about. But yeah, I do find there is a lot of pushback, but I have found quite a few people that are, you know, really like they're floored because um, they might have like family members that are adopted or they know someone that's adopted and they have helped to amplify the message. And they're like, this is a really important message. So that has been really nice to connect with people that are willing to like deconstruct and unlearn and relearn and then amplify it. So you get a little bit of both in terms of those spaces. Yeah. And I'm glad you've been finding spaces of support because this is a heavy message and I know that you're so passionate about carrying this conversation forward so it does make me feel really happy to hear that you've been getting some support in those spaces as well but when I listen to you I think you're kind of saying a lot of what we say in the podcast whether it's suicide or big behaviors or fill in the blank whatever topic 
there's certain conversations that as humans, we hate being uncomfortable. Like it's, I think that's just a human trait. I hate being uncomfortable. I don't know too many people who sign up for a discomfort. And so it's easier to push that off onto somebody else or to just not deal with it and kind of dissociate a little bit from that discomfort rather than getting really curious about why that's so uncomfortable and why we're having a hard time holding space for other individuals. So I, what I'm hearing you say is that even though it's ridiculously difficult, heavy, uncomfortable, messy, we still owe it to others to figure out ways to hold space, to be brave enough, literally, to do our own work so that we're able to hold space for others who are vulnerable, who are suffering, who don't feel like they have anywhere else to turn. And how would they be able to access safety if everywhere that they turn are people who are unwilling or unable to have these conversations? So I love what you just said, because I think it really highlights the importance that we can't just pathologize adopted and displaced people. If we're in connection to other adopted and displaced people, it's our obligation and our non-negotiable responsibility to do our own work to make sure that we're able to meet them no matter where they're at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I would encourage the listeners that are sitting, you know, and are comfortable or maybe angry at what they're hearing right now. I would encourage them to think that the statistic um, is four times more likely to attempt suicide. These are real people. These are real lives. So this is like a life and death conversation. And if we care about people, we owe it to people to have this conversation. So this isn't like a non-negotiable thing. If we want to help, if we want to um, you know, be, be a good human, be empathetic, be compassionate, be understanding, then we need to be thinking about these are real people that are struggling. These are real people that, you know, have died. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's so important. And Amy and I have talked about this, right? It's, it's a tuning to somebody as a whole, right? I think that when there's this, you know, topic of like suicidality on the table, people are so quick just to like laser focus in and be like, you know, like you said, pathologize or label them, you know, as suicidal or whatever it is. And yes, that maybe is like a part, right? A part that's in immense amounts of pain and is trying its best to protect the system right but if we only focus on that we're missing out on like so many other aspects of a human right like we're just choosing to pinpoint and focus on one thing and again like I said in some cases that is necessary because we want people to be safe right but I you know just in over the course of my work and what I've learned I've, I've learned to shift the frame or to instead of like, oh my gosh, when somebody says this to me, I'm just going to safety plan and do all these things and have them sign a safety contract. Like that shit really doesn't work. Right. But be able to say, you know what, there is a part of you that is trying so hard to protect you and wants you to know if all of your other protective parts, like, you know, peter out, you still have like an option. There's still a way to make this feel better. And I find that that is something that a lot of my clients, there's just like this breath of like, you know, that's, that's such a more compassionate way to look at this instead of like you were saying earlier, just vilifying and like punishing it or threatening of like, well, I got to send you to the hospital then, or I got to call the police, which just adds more layers of trauma. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think it's in that space that you're explaining is that people feel seen and affirmed, which at the essence of like what all of us need and deserve. Yeah. And I'd be curious, I'd have a theory that by just naming that, mm -hmm. your clients have a sense of, okay, I'm not 100% in this alone. And maybe before I had this conversation, 
I had this buy-in that I was 100% alone. And now I see that I'm not because I was validated. And so being able to be really adoption competent in therapeutic spaces is Mm -hmm. so important for exactly what you just highlighted, Marcella. But speaking to that systemic level, Lena, I'm curious, what do you think clinicians or social workers could do to better prepare families who are wanting to grow their family through the process of adoption or just kind of navigate this whole conversation in general? What comes to mind for you? I would say, and I I was on a podcast last week and I, I said this exact same thing. I feel like people that are thinking about adopting or have decided they want to adopt before they do that, before they make that commitment, they really need to research adoption. They need to listen to the voices of the most impacted. And if they have any of their own trauma, like the fertility issues or um, infertility issues, or maybe they've lost a child and this is a child to replace the other child, they need to do their healing first. Because yeah. when you come, if you're going to walk down this path, you need to do all your work. So you're not adding trauma upon trauma upon trauma. It's not okay to look for another child to heal any of our trauma. Mm-hmm. It's not okay. So do your work, research it, listen to the voices and really sit with that discomfort. I would say, um, you know, follow adopted people. There's a lot of memoirs and books out now. There's a lot being written about child welfare connect all of that, read all of that, read as much as possible, because it's important to understand the institution of adoption and the institution of child welfare, or often called family policing, but to do this research to understand what is really going on, and then decide, like, is this something that I'm really, is this something I want to take on? Is this a path I want to go down? And I would say if they're looking to adopt trans or transracial child, then that's a whole nother level of work that needs to be done. Have they done anti-racism work? Have they done anti-oppressive work? Are they decolonizing? Are they, who are their friends in their life? Um, what area do they live in? Do they live in an all white area? Um, what kind of music and books and art are they surrounded by, um, you know, different things, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's not something to just decide one day and do because there are so many, so many things that are done wrong in adoption and so many ways that children are harmed that can contribute to the suicidal ideation, suicide attempts and death by suicide. If you're experiencing racism in the home that you're growing up with, that's not going to be good for one's mental health. You know, that's going to be another adverse childhood experience. So I think people so often come to adoption as a plan B, C, D. It's a quick, you know, it's kind of like part of the narrative. You know, if you can't have your own children, then adopt. But the conversation is much bigger than that. That conversation is missing the loss of a family, the separation of a family, how this child is going to be impacted how is this child going to be supported? Um, are, is, is this person that's going to raise the child going to be okay when this child asks about their family, wants to find their family, you know, is angry, is struggling? How How is that going to be supported? So it's like, it's a very, very, this could be a whole episode of, yeah. you know, yeah. Like yeah. multiple yeah. episodes of, because it's, it, I'm boiling it down so like to such small pieces, but it's really a big thing. Adopting is not something just like, oh, I'm going to, you know, go to the park today. It's nothing. It's not an easy 
it shouldn't be an easy decision to come to. It needs to be thought about. It needs to be researched. It needs to be, it needs to really be, you need to do due diligence on this. This isn't just like a minor thing that's just going to be, you know, great and easy and all of this. So I think society, you know, obviously that's part of the narrative, but there's so much that goes into this. So people really need to think and not just come to the decision and do it and then realize, you know, a, a year into it or two years into it or 15 years into it, you know, this is really hard. This child is really struggling. And then imagine having a child that's a teenager they haven't done any work. They they had no idea the option was trauma. They didn't yeah. connect the dots there. So imagine the impact on the child there. This is a child's life. They haven't been seen. They haven't been supported. So to do the work at 15, that could have been done all along. I mean, yeah. that's, that's a huge myth right there. Yeah. But what I hear you saying too, is like a, like a big takeaway of that for me is that the prevention can happen and should be happening before a placement is even happening. Like Mm -hmm. that is stuff that, you know, there, it doesn't mean that it's a guarantee, right? That an adoptee or displaced person or anybody with complex trauma will not have that part of them that kind of rears its head here and there. But there are so many things that adoptive parents, adoptive families, professionals can do in order to not make that voice have to be any louder, right? And that's something that should be happening before, you know, a, a child's even being brought into the into the mix, into the situation. Yeah. And I think those providers and the people that are looking to adopt or have adopted, they have to be able to st- say and realize adoption's trauma adoption's grief, adoption's loss. Mm -hmm. And if they can't sit with that, this is probably not going to be a good path for them because they're not going to be validating the child that's in their care. Yeah. I think one of the biggest challenges with that is that because at at the heart and soul of what adoption really is, at the end of the day, when you take all the emotion out of it, it's a business Mm -hmm. and it's a very profitable business. And I think if, if I were selling something and I was like, Hey, it's going to cause a ton of like emotional upheaval in your life. And you're going to be paying a lot of money for different therapies. And there's going to be really big explosive behaviors and suicide might be a part of the conversation. If I was selling that product versus it's going to be really squishy and cute and you're going to love it and feel so good inside. Obviously there's two different messages, but I'm talking about the same thing. And so there's a fine line. I think that agencies have to toe of how honest are we really? And how do we, if we are being really honest, how do we get parents and caregivers to not run in fear from that and really embody it? Because what I also see that I think is really frustrating, but I can understand is that agencies will are starting to make a shift towards more neurobiology, understanding the science of attachment, understanding what it means to be anti-racist. All these conversations are starting, but I think the disconnect for a lot of parents are is that they haven't had that lived experience. So there, it's really easy for them to brush it aside. It's like, well, our family, we don't have those issues. Or in my family, we've never had trauma. So I don't have a trauma background. And so therefore, like when we adopt, we'll, we, we'll be above that, right? And it's not until placement happens, all the support falls off. And then they're experiencing these big behaviors or seeing these things play out in the home. And then it's kind of like this, oh shit moment of like, wait, what were we learning back then? Like, what was that social worker trying to explain to us? And it's kind of like trying to play catch up. 
And then now here you have a kid who is having parents who are now completely outside their window of tolerance and trying to play catch up on how to support their child. And then it's just a matter of overwhelmed nervous system, trying to regulate an overwhelmed nervous system, which we know doesn't work. Yeah. So yeah. I think that it's a very hard thing systemically to honestly do in an ethical way because like we know adoptions are going to happen. Children are in need of homes, right? We know that that's something that I don't know, that's an impossible thing to navigate, the right answer for that. But how do we give par parents and caregivers and communities accurate, honest information where they're able to embody it, not mm -hmm. just read it mm -hmm. and keep it in a fairly like heady space. Does that make sense? It does, but I think adoption is never going to be ethical when money is exchanged. It's just not yeah. going to be ethical. We're rooted in all the isms, capitalism, racism, everything. So it's like how, I mean, here we'll sell anything, including other people's children. So it's like, it's not going to be ethical. It's an unregulated industry. You know, the government's making a ton of money off this. You know, mm -hmm. people are making a ton of money off of this. It's a 20 and a half billion dollar industry is what I've seen it valued as. So, I mean, the conversation is, we can, there's a lot, there's, this is like a whole other episode. There's other ways to envision care for children, you know, adoption, not being one of them. Um, that's like, that's another conversation for another episode, but yeah, I don't think I, I it's not going to be, um, it's not going to be the best interest of children when money's being exchanged and people are making their money off of this, this selling children, separating families, profiting off trauma you that's not an ethical business number one but number two money I mean if you're motivated by money and a lot of the people that are making these placements they have to make so many they have quotas mm -hmm. you know that's yeah. just not they're going to do whatever they can for these placements so it's just not going to be it's we can't center the children's interest here that's an issue of the industry, but I think as people who are looking to adopt or have adopted, you have a responsibility to that child. Mm -hmm. How sad for a child to be, you know, 16 years old. And then the people that adopted them are just like, oh, now what, what did that social worker tell us? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, this is a kid's life that you have in your care. So the, this child is depending on you. So, I mean, I think people as a whole, they need to, that's why I said they need to do their research. They need to listen to the voices. Obviously people selling us things are not going to have the best interest of us or the best interest of what they're selling generally. I mean, this yeah. is not, selling people is not an ethical or moral business. So how can, we can't, we can't use it as a, we can't say like the adoption industries and put it all on them. I'm going to put a lot of onus on the people looking to adopt because you have to do research. It's like when yeah. we're researching diamonds, people do a lot of research on that. When we're researching cars, people do a lot of research on that. When we're researching houses, you know, I mean, it goes on and on and on and on, but when people are, you know, looking to adopt, they're not researching. And that's, there yeah. are resources out there. They can't say like, there's not any resources. I didn't know that's a cop out. That's not responsible, you know, to, to be doing that, you know, and you're going to have a lot of, a lot of stuff to deal with, if that's going to be what people do. And I know a lot of people have done it like, oh, I didn't know. And then they want to do the learning like 15 years into it. But 
it is our responsibility to educate ourselves. There are resources to do so. If you can find a place to adopt a child, you can find resources. You can find the most impacted voices. You can find therapists like both of you that are adoption trauma-informed, that have lived experience, that worked with adopted and displaced people. You can find books. If you can afford to buy a child, you can afford to buy a $28 book. You know, I know that's right. <laughs> take some responsibility here. There's the internet. You know, you can find people like myself, people like you on the internet that are doing lots of free emotional labor. There are being books written by people that are not adopted that are talking about the child welfare system. So it's it's a cop out to say like I don't know, I didn't know. Like you, if yeah. you can, if you have the money to buy a child, you have the money to find resources. I think that's such a powerful statement. I think, first of all, everything you just said is like a snap mic drop moment. I think there was totally. so much power, like there's so much power in everything that you just said. Um, and like you said, there's probably a million episodes just within that last bunch that you said that we could veer off and talk. I mean, I could sit here and talk to you guys all day about this. I'm with you on that. I think I agree with what you said. And it's, it's disheartening. It's interesting too, because as you're talking, I'm just kind of reflecting back when I was a little adopted person mm -hmm. and I, it's, we embody that commodification. I remember going through a phase for sure when I was very little, probably around my son's age, like six or seven and having this realization that I had to have been bought. And mm -hmm. I remember running and chasing my mom around the house and I'm like, how much did I cost? How much did I cost? And she would never tell me because I think for her, that was just a, not ever a perspective shift for her that she ever had, that this was like yeah. a transaction. Like that was never in like her, in her like realm of awareness of like mm -hmm. anything. But I think for me asking, it was interesting because I, I'm, I got that mirroring of like extreme discomfort in that. Right. And so even there, even there, like as a little itty bitty kid, I had this, this like awareness in my body as a six or seven year old, I, I didn't understand the system. I didn't understand really anything about this narrative yet. But I think you bring up a good point that some of these things that we're talking about aren't little kids sitting down and having these big in-depth conversations. It lands in our system and we have a sense of it, whether we have language and theory for it or not. And so if adults aren't able to do their own work to be able to help us navigate those big, funky, crazy, scary questions, emotions, curiosities, then it's only going to intensify and isolate us as we're navigating our own stuff. Yeah. Yeah. There was just, as both of you were talking, right, there is this, I don't know, there's like this feeling of sadness and just like disappointment I get of that, like our needs and all of this, like we being the most vulnerable, right? Like we're not even considered, right? Like for my parents, yeah, they went through like the BS, like basic training, but like it never even crossed their minds or it wasn't considered like, let me talk to other adoptees, right? Let me go and learn more about, you know, Marcella's culture. Let me learn Spanish so that she won't have to, you know, not speak it until she's, you know, in school or any of those things, right? Just these like little considerations that I think it all ends up contributing to our sense of worth, essentially, mm -hmm. right? Which like kind of, you know, how this circles back to this topic of suicide, like you, you know, anybody that that part is so active that is saying like, I don't even want to be here anymore and I'm going to do something about it. Mm -hmm. it. It's it's hinged on just this feeling of like, I'm, I'm worthless. Like I just shouldn't even be here. I don't deserve to be here, right? And if that is something that 
that, again, like I said, from the jump, our needs, our, you know, heritage, our culture, our loss, our trauma isn't even being considered. Like, I don't know, to me, it seems like a no brainer that, of course, something like suicide is going to be on the radar. It's going to feel like an option at some points to people that have had to, for the majority of their lives, go through, I, I don't feel a sense of worth. I don't feel heard. I don't feel acknowledged regarding things that are like foundational stuff in our stories. Like it, it, it just, it adds up for me. I don't know. It adds up. So what message, Lena, would you have for adopted or displaced people when it comes to suicide? I would say you're not alone. You know, you're definitely not alone. And the feelings that you're feeling about your lived experience are normal, whatever those feelings are, um, you know, and I'm sorry that, you know, you haven't been heard, or maybe this is the first time you're feeling validated or seen, but you're, you're definitely not alone. You know, the, the, the feelings that you're feeling are completely normal. Um, and I'm, I'm just sorry, you know, I'm sorry when people aren't validated. I'm sorry when people feel like they're alone. It's funny, like when you, when I'm listening to you say this, it's really interesting. I felt this shift in my body as an adoptee clinician. Yeah. I'm the one usually always saying that to other adoptees all day, every day. This mm -hmm. makes sense. I see you. Mm -hmm. I want you to know that you are not alone. Right. I say that all the time. Hearing another person, another peer, another adopted and displaced person say those words back to me, and I can see you right now on this Zoom call as we're speaking, there was a very profound sense of like affirmation that I felt in my body when I heard that. And it was interesting, like, I think it was such a big shift for me because I don't typically hear that, right? I'm the one usually saying that. And so when you even said that, it's like one of the most simple things that we all deserve to hear, right? Like you matter, you make sense, blah, blah, blah. And then, but how little we hear that back, right? Yeah. As living this experience. So I want to thank you for that, not just for our listeners, but also for me, that was just like, I felt that and that I needed that, I guess. Like I really, that I really, really felt that. Um, what message would you have for adoptive parents or prospective adoptive parents around the topic of suicide? I would say they need to, again, they need to do some research, attend some trainings um, regarding adoption and suicide and suicide alone. Um, I would get some books. Stacey Friedland wrote a book and she has lived experience and she also has, she's a psychologist. She also has work experience. So she supports a lot of people um, around the issue of suicide. I would say you know, need to understand suicide um, so it can be destigmatized in your household. So you can have these conversations and not be the person that, you know, goes to like a hundred and kind of like gets all frazzled. And when you get frazzled, the child in your care is going to get frazzled. So to understand totally. suicide and be, you know, have destigmatized and be able to have these conversations also to research adoption too. Like I said before, these need to be have, these need to be conversations you can have and if you're someone that's not able, if you can ask yourself, like, can I have these conversations? Am I going to commit to have these conversations? And if you're not someone that's going to do that, I would say, don't go down this path. You have to be committed to having the conversations and supporting the child in your care and sitting with the discomfort and sitting with the big feelings and, and supporting, not stigmatizing, not pathologizing, but supporting and affirming and, and, and just reaffirming that we want to remember again, 
adaption is trauma, suicide and suicidal ideation and attempts are a side effect of the trauma, just as addiction is a side effect of trauma, just like eating disorders, eating struggles are, um, eating struggles are a side effect of trauma. So if you can validate that and you can embody that, that would be what is important and what is needed to support any adopted or displaced child in your care. Yeah. So many takeaways from this. This is so great. I'm so happy we're having this conversation. Thank you for opening the, you know, making the space for it and, you know, creating the space to have this conversation because we need to be having this conversation, you know, on and on and on over and over and over again until, until there's, you know, the validation and society connects all the dots and then there's support. And, you know, we've lowered, you know, suicide rates and adapted and displaced people are, you know, supported, but I mean, that's going to be in time and we know there's steps to it. So I'm grateful for this space to have this conversation today. Yeah. But it's, it's meaningful, important conversations. And like you just said, Lena, right. It's like, you know, all three of us here would love if this would happen overnight, right? It would be really awesome. We'd all be like out of our jobs, but like, it would be great. But these, (laughs) these hard conversations are where it starts, right? I think so many people, you know, jump to, oh, well, you know, there needs to be legislation and there needs to be this whole overhaul and all of that. And yes, absolutely there does. But like, if people can't even tolerate having a conversation like this, like how in the hell are we going to, you know, uproot and like have upheaval of these systems that are really messy. And I think that that's something that I hope for listeners out there, like that is something that we, I hope can all commit to like in our own little bubbles and our own little circles, like, you know, commit to having some of these really hard conversations that like, yes, you're going to have to keep circling back to, but you know, those conversations, you know, have the capacity to, to make waves and, and lead to some bigger changes. Definitely. I think if you're an adoptive parent, caregiver, or prospective adoptive parent tuning in and you are feeling triggered by this conversation, I would just encourage you and challenge you to get really curious about what it is about that trigger that is pulling you into such a place of discomfort. It is, like we talked about before in other episodes, triggers actually are messages for us that leave us clues of where we still have healing that needs to take place. So really listen to that. Try not to push it to the side. I know that's the easiest thing. We hate being uncomfortable. And if you're an adoptee or displaced person tuning in and listening and feeling triggered by this conversation, the same message goes to you. That I, the same thing that Lena said earlier is that you are not alone in this. And we are here to help you and support you navigate spaces of healing. If you have any questions on how to do that, please feel free to reach out. Um, But knowing that there is definitely lots of spaces and support around the country for you to access and begin that healing journey for yourself. For sure, for sure. Lena, thank you so, so much for being our first honorary guest, right? You can always like play the card that you were the first guest on Adoptee's Dish, right? Those are your, you know, brownie points forever and ever. Before we tune off, let people know like anything that you're working on, where they can find you, because like, this is our, this is our girl here. We got to support her. Thank you. You can find me um, at Lena Leads with Love on Instagram and on Twitter. My website is under construction right now. It's in the process right now. I have upcoming trainings 
um, regarding, I've been doing a lot in transracial adoption lately, um, and I'll be having some upcoming trainings you can find. I post the information on social media. I do have an event coming up. Um, I have events coming up every month and I post those as well. So you can, you know, follow me on social media and, you know, connect that way. Awesome. So if you guys aren't following Lena, she's a very powerful voice and a huge, huge, tremendous advocate for our community. Um, our community is better because of her for sure. So make sure that you go and follow if you're not already and show our girls some love, our hermana some love. And Lena, thank you so much for sharing your heart and soul with us today. Again, this is such tremendous emotional labor. And so we see you and we're, we're so thankful for you contributing to this conversation. Thank you for having me on your podcast. It's such an honor. I love our conversations and um, I look forward to the collaboration and continued conversations. Absolutely. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to Adoptees Dish. We want to give a special shout out to Patreon, Spotify, iTunes, and Anchor. If you like what you heard and want to support our work or allow us to have amazing guests on the show, please consider making a donation. We can be reached on Instagram at Adoptees Dish Podcast, at Grohio Blossom, and Marcella Maslow. And you can send us emails at adopteesdish at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening and join us next week for our next episode. Please share this podcast. Talk to others about things you learned. Together, we have the potential to heal broken systems.